listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. report came out this past week that was looking at church attendance and how that has declined over the past uh, decade or decade and a half. And it looked at uh, different uh, sects of what some would call Christianity. And they looked at Protestants and Catholics. They even looked at Jews and Muslim numbers. And here's what the report saw. And I heard this on a, on a, on a, a daily podcast, n- conservative news outlet, okay? So that's important. But here's what the report said. It said that Protestant church attendance, and that would be us, so if we call ourselves Christians and we're not Catholics, we are lumped into this Protestant uh, other category. Some of you are like, wait, we're Protestant? And we can talk about that later, okay? Uh, It's a big historical thing. It's been happening for hundreds of years, and so hopefully that's not a huge surprise to you. But if it is, just go with me on this one, okay? So it said that uh, our type of people, uh, our church attendance has uh, declined sharply over the past 10 years. And it talked about how mostly Jews uh, and Muslims have their church attendance, tabernacle, synagogue attendance has remained mostly steady. Uh, Catholic attendance has decreased like 3% in the past 10 years. Not huge, but for Protestants, we're in the double digits of church attendance decrease. And so the, the folks who are reporting on this, again, not a Christian outlet, but they would say that, that they're conservative. They said, okay, so what's, what are the ramifications of folks not going to church, not attending And one of the other reporters said, well, they should be going to church because for those who attend church regularly, uh, it it is less of a strain on uh, the medical community because they they typically smoke and drink less. They typically statistically have more babies, which is better for the culture to continue propagating itself. And it allows for capitalism to flourish because we have more workers in the workforce. Uh, It's better for us uh, just socially. People tend to deal less with depression when they attend church. It's better for us. Uh, We don't want to be at war as much. We tend to uh, protest less. There are all these social implications. And so here's what the other reporter said. Again, they, we would probably agree with almost uh, everything they said in this report. It's a news report, but they said, the other person said, well, I guess what that means is that more folks should go to church. And the other reporter said, yes, that's exactly what this report shows. And so for us, as we look at that, we would say, man, church attendance is really important socially. Statistically, we could prove that. You don't have to look at the Bible and to see that. But here's what I want us to see this morning, that as we've been looking at the book of Luke and we finish up chapter 9 and verse 27 back at the very end of November, what I want us to see is that this book is not about social change. The primary objective of this book is not to say, we want y'all to get together in these buildings so that you can live a better, less depressed, better on the medical society, less uh, oppressive type of life. That's not the goal of the gospel. The point of the gospel is for us as God's people to be experiencing real life change that begins with your heart. 
So this morning, if you've come here and you're like, man, I, I need to go to church and there's, a, there's just something gnawing at me and I just need to do that so I can feel better about myself. Can I tell you, there's something even better than feeling better and his name is Jesus. If you're here just because someone else wants you to be here or you want to make God happy or if you think the big guy upstairs is going to be mad if you're not here, whatever that is, the reason that we have gathered this morning is to grow in a relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, out of that are going to be social, political, socioeconomic implications. And most of those are really good ones. We could agree on those. But can I tell you this morning, we, we gather this morning so that we can grow in our love for Jesus Christ. And I think the reason that most people are not attending church as much as they were in the past is because we who are here, even on this cold, wintry, um, sickish kind of, you know, morning, is because when we leave here, we don't think about our relationship with Jesus very much. And it doesn't really impact the way that we live. And so may we be transformed this morning as we look at the book of Luke. That's my goal for us. We've seen already so far in Luke, we actually saw in Luke chapter 1, uh, Luke is writing this book to his friend Theopolis. And he says, the reason I'm writing this to you is so that you can be certain. That's the word that he ends verse number 4 with in chapter 1. He says, I'm writing all of these things to you, Theophilus, so that you can be certain of what's in this book, so that you can be certain of what you believe. And so, so far we've seen in this book, we've seen John the Baptist. He's come and said, hey, there's this Messiah who's coming. We see the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 is really famous. We just came out of this Christmas season. It's a popular time. We saw uh, following that Jesus, he, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. He enters into ministry. He's tempted. Uh, Jesus begins calling his disciples to him. He begins teaching uh, in parables. He begins uh, pouring into his disciples, making disciples. He begins healing. And we have all of these things throughout the first couple of years of Jesus' life and ministry. And today, we, we come to this, this, uh, the, the very end of this first scene. Now, next week, beginning in verse number 51, uh, we're going to see where Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and he begins walking toward the cross. And so today, we see this is kind of a summary of Jesus' ministry thus far. So go to Luke chapter 9. Uh, Jeff read this for us a minute ago. He I'm not going to read the entire passage. He just read this. Um, before we jump in, I want, us to, uh, I want you to repeat these words after me. This comes from Psalm chapter 119, and may this be our heart and our prayer as we look at the Word of God. So repeat this after me. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful Word to me. That's our purpose this morning. It's not for you to live a, a better, less depressed life. It's for you to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. And so may these words be true. As we look at this passage this morning, I want you to notice a couple of things. Because at, at first glance, when I first looked at this uh, earlier this week, I thought, man, what in the world is going on? I feel like Luke was like, hey, uh, Jesus is about to go uh, turn his face to Jerusalem in verse 51, which the chapters and verses weren't there until hundreds of years later. But he's like, I've got to pile in all of these uh, all of these stories of Jesus' ministry right at the very end of this. And so it's, it seems kind of disconnected. But here's what I want us to see in these verses this morning is there's this almost a, a tennis match 
And I can use that because I started playing tennis this past week with my boys. We got on some tennis rackets so we can go uh, and actually get some exercise. But one thing I noticed in this passage is that there's this back and forth between Jesus and the disciples. The perspective of Jesus is this. It's of supernatural power. The perspective of Jesus is that his kingdom is going to come in a supernatural way. So notice his supernatural response to the disciples. On the other side of the net are the disciples. And almost every single one of their responses is one of the natural man. And so before we start piling on the disciples and we're like, man, these guys are so dense. What is wrong with them? Does the elevator not go all the way top floor? Wait, what is going on? May we be reminded that we're not on the side of Jesus on this one. We're just not. We're on the, on the side of the disciples, and they're speaking for us, okay? So we see here in, in the very beginning, and maybe you're a pericope there, that bold heading right above verse number 28. It says the transfiguration. Now, it doesn't say actually transfiguration anywhere uh, in this passage. We, we do see this word transfiguration showing up. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, which is a parallel passage to this. And the word that's actually used there in the Greek is metamorphosis. And we understand that word metamorphosis because of an animal like a caterpillar, which goes through metamorphosis to change into something else. And so here we see Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, being transformed before the eyes of these disciples from one who is a man. They see him to one, they begin seeing the glory of God. We see him uh, a radical visual transformation. So notice, this is eight days later uh, with Peter and John and James. He goes up to the mountain to pray. Now, whenever Jesus is praying, something big is about to happen. We've seen that so far in the book of Luke. When Jesus is praying, something big is about to happen. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. That's where we have that idea, that transfiguration. He was changed. He was metamorphized, if that's a word. And the clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now notice we have Jesus we have this guy, Moses, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Uh, we have this guy, Moses. Now, notice the parallel here between Moses and Jesus. Both of these guys went up on a mountain. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Here, Jesus goes up on this mountain to pray. The difference, though, is when Moses went up on the mountain, he reflected the glory of God. Jesus here is radiating the glory of God. So it's the difference between a moon and a sun. Jesus is God himself. Moses is simply a reflection of that. When Moses went up on the mountain back in the book of Exodus, what did he come down with? The law, the Ten Commandments. What Jesus is about to accomplish here is the cornerstone of the gospel. His death his resurrection. So we see here some parallels, but we see right there in verse number 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, if your word departure right there is like mine, if it has a tiny little number one beside it, here's a little Bible study tip for you. Make sure you always look those up. Those are really important because if it's like, you're like, ah, oh, I've, I've always wondered what those numbers and random letters were for. But if you look right there at the bottom or the side of your page, it may say Greek Exodus. 
So in other words, that word right there, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. Now, what's his exodus? Which there's a comment that says, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So literally, we have Moses, the very first exodus. We have God's people in slavery. They were bound by the Pharaoh. They were there for 400 years. And then Moses comes along as a rescuer to redeem them from slavery. Out of that first exodus, we have the nation of Israel created. Remember through this event called Passover, which is where they said the blood of the lamb is going to cover our doorpost. Well, here we have the same thing. Luke uses that word intentionally. He says Jesus is about to accomplish this exodus which is this uh, Old Testament salvation narrative. And Luke is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this true and better exodus. Because not only are we slaves to some human master, no, we're slaves to a spiritual master. So it's a much worse slavery than having a physical master, Pharaoh, ruling over us. We're slaves to the enemy, to Satan. Jesus comes down not as a Moses, but as a better Moses to redeem us from the hand, from the grip of hell, from Satan. He doesn't establish a nation, but he establishes his church. And then at the end of the sermon, in just a few minutes, hopefully in a few moments, we're not going to celebrate the Passover, but we're going to celebrate communion. Because it's not just the blood of a lamb that covers us, but it's the blood of a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, which covers us. So when we look here, this transfiguration, we're like, oh man, this is really interesting. This is cool. We have the, the glory of Moses, glory of Jesus. But understand, Luke is saying, man, this is a much better Moses. This is a much better deliverer. This is a much better savior. Verse, uh, let's look at verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, I guess we could say when they were woke, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I think it's different than what we're talking about now. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Now, notice Peter, he's good at this. He's, he's almost a professional. At, he has this you know, foot and mouth disease. He says, man, this is awesome. Let's create a building and we can put some bronze plaques on it and, and we could put people's names on them. And so we can, we can build this tent, maybe this tabernacle, this church of sorts. And if you know, Moses and Elijah, maybe the other big donors who are here, we could put their names on gold plaques and put them under windows and put them at the end of pews. You know what I'm saying? Y'all ever been there? Uh, that's, that's the way I grew up. So that's what Peter is saying. He says, let's make these tents. But Jesus is like, man, I don't think you understand. Because notice at the end of that verse, let's make one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, which pretty much summarizes Peter's life up to this point. Jesus did not come to be in a tabernacle with us. That's the Old Testament. His presence had to dwell there as a cloud. But Jesus has come, John chapter 1, verse 14, to tabernacle, a verb, to tabernacle with his people. Now Jesus has come in the flesh to be with us. That's why Luke says, Peter, you don't even know what you're talking about, man. You have no idea. You don't understand the presence of Jesus. It's way better than you think it is. We don't need a tent. We have the people of God who are about to show up. We have this church. 
But here's the thing. We're really quick to Christianize things around us. Because notice what Peter does. Again, we can identify with the disciples. We're quick to say, man, you know what would be awesome? Is if we could just show up and Jesus was there in person every single week. That would be so cool. Wouldn't it be awesome if not only so think back to that morning wire episode that I listened to earlier this week, uh, but, but think about like if our society, if everybody went to church, if everything was perfectly peaceful, if all the medical system was free and it was just amazing and everybody lived really well, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, because they were looking for this Messiah, and we saw it earlier in chapter 9, they're looking not for a spiritual Savior, but they're looking for a political Savior. They said, Jesus, we want to bring your kingdom down. Let's make it. Let's start it right here. But what's Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses about? He's talking not about his final arrival, but he's talking about his departure, his exodus. He's talking not about what he's going to accomplish here and now. He's talking about what he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He says, I didn't come here to rule and to reign this first time. I've come here to die, to be sacrificed. Verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God the Father speaks audibly three times in the New Testament. He speaks at Jesus' baptism, he speaks here, and he speaks in John 14 as Jesus is about to uh, head to be crucified. This is actually the only time that God the Father speaks in the New Testament where people listen and they understand and they actually get it. It makes sense to them. Imagine for a second, because I, I think we just kind of gloss over this and we're like, man, the disciples must have been freaking out. Think about it from the perspective of Jesus real quick. What was the impact on Jesus when he heard the words of his father spoken over him? Think about the impact on Jesus. Because for us, it's difficult for us to relate to somebody who is fully God. But we have to remember that Jesus is fully man. And so Jesus is about to set his focus on Jerusalem to go be put to death for us. He knows it's going to happen. And here the father steps in and he reminds the son to those listening around. But he reminds Jesus, yes, I have an intimate relationship with you. We share the same identity. And your mission is this, to go to Jerusalem. Be reminded, be encouraged of this. Imagine the impact this had on Jesus. And in verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So Elijah and Moses, boom, they're gone just like that. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But then we keep going and you see there in the next section, Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And we just read this a few minutes ago. So this dad brings his son to Jesus. And he's like, hey, your disciples couldn't heal him. So Jesus, can you help? Can you please heal him? Notice in verse number 41 what he says. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you and bear with you? Again, we're identifying here with the disciples. The issue, and they had gone and they had healed, this was actually a surprise to the disciples. Think about that. They had 
They had been healing. They had been, uh, they had been enacting miracles. They had been casting out demons. They had been healing those who were sick, and they couldn't now. So it was a surprise to them. So think about the perspective of the disciples. They, they got to be thinking, man, why can we not do this? The issue with the disciples not being able to heal is not one of power or authority. They had that in Jesus. Jesus tells you the issue right here. The issue is that they lacked faith. Because Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know what, disciples? Yeah, y'all aren't part of this wicked and this faithless generation. The guy says, your disciples can't do it. I imagine Jesus looked at his disciples. Man, look around. And all throughout this passage, Jesus is kind of annoyed. And he, whenever, remember this ping pong, this table, this, this tennis back and forth. I forgot what analogy I used at the beginning. This, this tennis uh, image back and forth. Jesus is like, man, why don't you have any faith? And the disciples are like, ah, I don't know why we can't do this. I mean, isn't casting out a demon, isn't that good? Wouldn't that be positive? Right? So why couldn't they do it? We have to consider the motivation behind the disciples' inability to cast out this demon. What would the disciples have gained if they had cast the demon out of this boy? What would they have gleaned from that? Say it again. Fame. Fame. They, they They would have achieved their own self glory. Because Jesus says, Y'all are faithless. And for those who are faithless, what are you pursuing? Your own fame, your own power, your own kingdom. How long am I going to bear with you? And Jesus says, Bring your son here. So Jesus links this faithlessness with unbelief. That's pretty strong. And we can look around us and say, man, look at, this, look at this faithless generation. Look at this generation who doesn't value marriage, who doesn't value uh, sexual identity, who doesn't value the sanctity of life. But can I push back on that a little bit? What about for us, if we, instead of looking out, what if we looked around and we said, how do we value caring for the poor? How do we value engaging with those around us who don't know about Jesus Christ? How do we value living lives of sacrifice? How do we value our time in prayer? How do we value our time in the word? How do we value speaking boldly or raising kids to love Jesus more than to love sports? How do we value those things? Because I wonder if Jesus would look at us and say, you faithless, twisted, perverse, wicked generation. Again, let's not look at someone else. Let's be reminded that we have the natural perspective here of the disciples. As I read this passage, the question that keeps coming back to mind is where or maybe how, how will the supernatural power of God be unmistakably displayed? Think about that for a second. So when we look at the transfiguration, we look at the disciples being unable to heal and Jesus steps in and heals. When we think about the unmistakable supernatural power of God being put on display, what do we think of most? And most of the time, we think of something that's going to happen in the future. Most of the time, we think of something incredible. We think of Jesus showing up here in all glory and splendor. But here's what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, I'm heading to the cross. That's where you're going to see my glory most on display. That is the most unnatural display of love. That is the most supernatural display of my power that you are going to see. Jesus says, you can't even handle this. If you look back at right before this passage in verse number 21, it says that Jesus foretells his death. Then again, if you look right in the middle of verse number 43, so if we move on from Jesus healing, verse 43, look there at the heading again. It says that Jesus again foretells his death. In verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So at this point, when I was reading this, I thought, well, we can't really blame the disciples. But look at the next sentence. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, we don't know if they had asked if it would have been revealed to them. My, my guess is that it, it would have been because Jesus is not saying this so that they wouldn't understand. He's saying this a second time. And the third time that he actually says this is 10 chapters later. In chapter 18 or 19 is the last time that Jesus foretells us death. So right here in the very middle of this, we see, okay, why do we not have the glory of Jesus coming down right now? Why is the power of God most, not most evidently displayed right now? Again, think back to this supernatural display of God's power and this natural display of God's power because Jesus is saying, my power is going to be displayed supernaturally because I've come here to die. I've come here to be given over to the hands of men. I am beginning an exodus from here, from this life. I am heading to accomplish my work at Jerusalem. You faithless and twisted generation, you want a kingdom built here now. You want to build tents so that we can create a kingdom here now. You want to have this power of your own authority, but you can't even cast out demons. Jesus is saying, man, look, you see the difference here between what you think is powerful and what true power is? What you think glory is and what true glory is? What you think an amazing kingdom is and what a real amazing kingdom is? Jesus is saying it's not about the here and now. It must be accomplished on the cross. My kingdom is one of sacrifice. It's not one of power. Look at verse 46. So even in the middle of this, these guys still don't get it. Jesus says this a second time. Just in the past few minutes, you know, we've read that Jesus says this. Verse 46, an argument arose them over uh, about which one of them is going to be the greatest. You, you see here the, the difficulty with these guys? <laughs> Do you look in the mirror and see the difficulty with us? We think, man, I, I just want things to go well. I, I want to have power. I want to be at rest. I want there to be peace right now. I want to be rich. I want to have all the friends. I want to drive the nicest car. I want to live in the nicest house. I want to be successful. I want to have all of the things right now. Jesus says, you twisted and perverted generation. And the disciples say, okay, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Let's, let's talk about who's going to be the greatest. You see this natural response to Jesus? They don't even get him. Jesus says, you should be like this little child who's here. He brings a child. He says, hey, come be like this child right here who has nothing to offer, who has um, only dreams, no real success, who's weak, who doesn't have anything to bring Jesus. He says, be like this one. Just bring me a little bit of faith. 
and you get me, and the person who gets me gets my father. That's it. And if you keep reading, you see that John answers and says, uh, look at, look at the, well, the next page, page uh, verse 49. John answered. So uh, notice, so they, they don't get it. John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. So John becomes a tattletale as Jesus talks about his death, about how they can't cast out demons, how they shouldn't build a, a tent here for Moses and Elijah. He says, I'm going to die. Why are y'all worried about who's the greatest? And John says, well, look over there at those guys. Look at what they're doing. We tried to stop them, Jesus. We thought we were doing the right thing. That's my best John impersonation. But Jesus said to him, why in the world would you stop him? For the one who is not against you is for you. He says, it's not about you. It's not about your glory and your fame right now. It's about my kingdom. And guys, you don't even get it yet. We, we must have this paradigm shift. And here's what I think he says. And here are the, if, you wanna, if you're a note taker, if you want to write these things down, I think we see three things from this passage, okay? We, we see three things that Christ has talked about here. The first thing we see is that glory in the first, during the transfiguration, is that glory is recalibrated. Now, recalibrate is not my ideal word to put in that spot, but uh, it fits, so I have to. So uh, my now seven-year-old, he got a, a remote control car uh, for Christmas, and on the very bottom, it had like this left and right with this little dial in the middle. And he said, Dad, what's that for? I said, well, buddy, this remote control car is cheap, and so uh, it's probably not going to drive perfectly straight. And so that is there to help align it. So if you start driving your car what you think is straight, and it starts veering off this way, you need to go in there and dial it back the other way. And then he figured that out. He was driving it. And so it means to, to course correct. Jesus here is saying, you think your glory is for this. You think it's going over here. You think it's all about the right now. You think it's so you can live your best life right now. And Jesus is saying, no, let's recalibrate to my glory. Let me tell you the reason that I have come. Now, we notice the sharp contrast here in all of the disciples' portrayals of glory. None of them are relational. In fact, all of them are non-relational. When the man brings this boy to them, they want to cast this demon out for their own glory, not to create a better relationship with this man. They want to build tents so they can put their names on them. Who can be the greatest in the kingdom? But notice what Jesus says about true glory. He says, I've come to sacrifice my life for you. You twisted and perverted generation, let me speak to this child and heal him to build a relationship with this man and with his son. Let me bring this little child over. My glory is relational. Here's what we see about the transfiguration. This is up on the screen. The transfiguration puts the glory of Jesus on display, but the cross is even more breathtaking. The cross is even more breathtaking because we see Jesus clothed here in the transfiguration and it's shining and it's like lightning and it's beautiful and it's white. But when Jesus is on the cross, relationally, his clothes are soaked in blood and then they're divided among sinners. We see Jesus when he's here in the transfiguration, he was surrounded by Moses and Elijah, these Old Testament prophets. But when he's on the cross, he's surrounded by criminals. We see Jesus here when he is at the transfiguration. He is enveloped in the presence of God. But on the cross, 
Jesus is enveloped in darkness. And when Jesus is here in the transfiguration, we see that he hears the voice of God, and he loves it, and the Father is pleased with him. But on the cross, the Father is pleased to crush him, and he turns his back on Jesus. So how do you know significance? How do you know glory? How do you know what is weighty? You look at the cross. And I know for me, I, I pursue glory and significance in so many ways. I think, what would significance bring my life? And for me, I'm like, man, it would bring meaning to my life. Significance would bring purpose to my life. I think, what would I, what would I actually achieve if I had meaning to my life? Anybody there? Because you're like, man, I wish I, knew, I wish I knew God's meaning for my life. And I think, what would I, what would I achieve? What would I, what would I accomplish or receive? Or what would it feel like to think, man, I know my life's meaning and purpose. And for me, when I step into that idea, I think, man, this is peaceful. I don't have to earn anyone else's favor. I don't have to perform. I don't have to look nice for this person. I don't have to pursue their accolade. There's rest in significance. And here Jesus says, glory and significance and meaning and purpose is found in the cross. For him, and for us. And so I would, say, I would say this morning, instead of finding your glory in all these other things, run to Jesus, who found his significance in the cross and who offers significance and life and meaning and hope and peace and rest to you because he has finished that work and he invites you into that relationship. His glory is relational. It's not works-based. He has accomplished that. So we see glory is recalibrated. Secondly, we see that greatness is redefined. Now notice in, these, in verses 37 through 50, we see here this talk of greatness. And Jesus doesn't attack this human pursuit of greatness, but he redefines it. He doesn't attack it, but he redefines it. Because here's what the culture will tell us. The culture says, you can find your greatness in your physical appearance, in your material possessions, in your uh, academic accolades. You can find it in um, your vocational success. You can find greatness in your social media presence. But notice what Jesus says. He says in verse number 23, right before this, he said to, to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and die daily. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life, in other words, whoever would find greatness now is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So if we are going to follow a crucified Messiah, greatness for us is going to look much different than what the culture promises. And friends, we want our lives to count for so many great things. And some of those things really are great. I didn't say non-great things. Some of those things are really great. But if they are not lived for the glory in the kingdom of God, they are useless. 
And some of those great things could be some of those things I just mentioned, academics. I love, uh, if I had the um, financial means and the time, I would love to go get a PhD. I love study, love it. Nothing wrong with making money. Nothing wrong with driving a nice, nothing wrong with uh, having kids that obey. Those, those things are all, those things are really great. But unless you are investing in those things for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of the kingdom, those great things are useless. Lastly, not only do we see that glory is recalibrated at the cross, not only do we see that greatness is redefined by living for the kingdom, but we see that grace is realized. We see that grace, it comes to fruition. It's made real right in front of our eyes. Because even in the midst of this, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, disciples? Y'all stink. (laughs) I'm getting rid of y'all. No, we don't see that. The good news, the gospel of grace, is that God's power is not limited by our weaknesses or by our failings. It's not. Already in the book of Luke, we've seen that Jesus steps in and he heals those who are sick. I mean, Jesus' mom was a a virgin who had never been with a man. So the story of Jesus begins with, hey, this, uh, this, this lady who's got a dicey reputation already around town. Jesus steps in to those who are sick, to those who are hurting. He takes the demon-possessed and he makes them preachers. Remember that? So Jesus steps in and he wants to use us in the midst of our weakness. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8, it says this. This will be a familiar passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now remember, the contrast here is with the faithless and perverted, the twisted generation. But we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So that who can talk about it? None of us. We're not boasting in what we can do so that none of us can boast. For we are his workmanship. He wants to use us. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Faith is confidence in God's power working in us and working through us. And I would ask you this morning, what is your faith in? What is your faith in? Has grace been realized in your life? Because when you come down with a sickness, with some sort of disease, and the doctors can't find a cure for it, or it comes back again, It's at that moment that you're going to realize what your trust is in. When the job doesn't work out, where is your trust? Where is your faith? When a relationship is not reconciled, what is your hope? What is your trust? What is your faith in? Thankfully, we have another parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 9. So if you you don't have to go there with me, I'm I'm just going to reference it. But in, in Mark chapter 9, we see this man who brings his son to Jesus. And he tells Jesus, he says, I think it's in verse number 34. He says, Jesus, I have faith. I believe, but Jesus, help my unbelief. And so maybe you come here this morning and you're like, man, I I do want to live for God's glory, but I also kind of want to live for my own glory. Like there are some other things that I want to pursue. I would say, Fall upon the grace of Jesus and let it be realized in your life. Have faith. And then ask Jesus to help your unbelief. You believe, but help that unbelief. 
Maybe here you're attaining for greatness, and you're like, yeah, I have faith in Jesus, but I have all these other areas of kind of pseudo-greatness that I want to pursue. Cry out like the same man in Mark chapter 9. I believe, but help my unbelief. The words that Isaac Watts wrote some 300 years ago, I thought these were especially pertinent. These are up on the screen. This is uh, the old hymn, When I Survey. Let these words sink in this morning. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. May this be our prayer. We see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. But his love, so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul my life, my all. As we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, maybe you can look back at 2021 and you're like, I know, man, we've already, we've already moved well past that. Like, let's just, let's just forget about that. But just consider that, that year for a moment. And maybe 2021 was lived for your own glory, your own greatness. Maybe it was lived gracelessly. Maybe you've been living in that for the past 21 years. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus' mercy and his power is far-reaching enough to redeem you? My prayer for you this morning is that you may have faith that you would believe, but also that Jesus would step in and help your unbelief. In the same way that Jesus has used those in this passage, that we've already seen in the book of Luke. Jesus is powerful, powerful enough to use you, to redeem you, no matter your brokenness, your hurt, or your limitations. He has the power to heal, to restore, and to redeem. So this morning, church, may we rejoice in that. That grace has been realized on the cross of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.